HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area. And we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio. And we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's and their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food. And that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We, we just care very deeply about, about you as a, as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain. And, and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to, to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and, and care about learning everything there is to learn about it. And that's, that's we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio, and we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. Boys, I'm mellow as a honeydew. Yeah, that cat is high. Look that look in his eye. Oh man, he's high. Yes, higher than a kite. Hi, you're listening to the Speakeasy on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Damon Bolte, and my guest today is Thomas Waugh, currently the head bartender at Death and Company, a very famous cocktail bar in New York City. And formerly of San Francisco. Hello, Thomas. Welcome to the show. Hey, Damon. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are Thanks you? Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got to the point where you are now, being the head bartender at one of the world's premier cocktail bars, and uh, yeah, just like basically about how you got to be in New York City and working where you are now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... I get asked this question a lot, and it's a lot of people ask if we go to a bartending school to get to where we are, and you know, but I didn't go to any bartending school. In fact, I didn't go to school at all. After I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted, I knew I, what I didn't want to do, and that was go to college. <clears throat> I just wasn't ready, and I, I wanted to travel a little bit, live in different places, but you know, ultimately I had to find a job to support myself, and you start in the service industry. I mean, it's it's the easiest job. It's the most lucrative job. And yeah. I started in coffee shops and sort of worked my way up to to busing in restaurants, serving in restaurants, 
and then you know eventually once I moved once I finally moved to San Francisco when I was uh, about 22 years old I got into the bar bar business through through one of my brothers older brother's friends got me in as a, a bar backing job at actually a, a nightclub a huge nightclub <laughs> yeah <clears throat> so. it's a uh it's funny that you started out as a as a barista. We were talking about this a little bit earlier today, um, and then you you started out doing that. And then you went through like I wouldn't really call myself. I had to call myself a barista, <laughs> but back then I probably called myself a barista. You know, uh, that's pretty. Probably had a lot of pride, but right. It's uh, the whole coffee scene nowadays is very intense. There's lots lots of techniques that are coming up uh, that have never been seen before. You know, people are starting to use more like Chemexes and not just the the traditional. Uh, French press and espresso shots, but I think it's interesting that you started out that way because, I mean, obviously you're you're behind the a bar working with drinks, you know, and then eventually uh, you wisened up and started <laughs> pouring alcohol instead of caffeine, Drink, drinking things that matter. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I love I love tea. I'm passionate about tea, coffee. I love wine. When I go out, you know, with my girlfriend, we go eat we go eat at restaurants and. I totally dork out on food and wine just as much as I dork out on any other, you know, it, it just, just as much as I dork out on cocktails. Cool. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, the food scene in San Francisco is, it's they're very serious about it out there. Um, I know that uh, you get a lot more uh, local produce and stuff like that than we probably get out here, you know, obviously being in New York City. So they tend to take that to kind of a, another level that we're probably not able to get to. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean... I'm sort of a country boy at heart anyway. I grew up, in, you know, in the mountains in Northern California. So that whole organic thing is sort of important to me. It's sort of embedded in me, I think, you know. Um, and definitely after moving to New York and eating out here, you know, I mean, New York definitely has a food scene that rivals San Francisco's for sure. But it's just different, you know. And right. it definitely food and, lo- you know, local produce and just local thinking locally and ideas as far as organic things you know definitely trickles down from the food scene in san francisco to the cocktail scene and i think that that is what makes a big it's a big difference between the new york scene of cocktails and the san francisco scene of cocktails i'm not saying that it's better i would say that the produce (laughs) is better for sure it's it's fresher it's better it's you, it's just a source that in, in California. You just can't. It cannot be rivaled in New York. You know, I mean, I know it, you're probably hate, hating me for saying that. Everyone <laughs> that lives in New York right now. But. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it's true. No, uh, not at all, man. Um, no, uh, but that's that brings up an interesting point about like the difference, the difference of West Coast and East Coast cocktails. I mean, West Coast. I, obviously, being the entire West Coast, I'm, I'm really trying to say West Coast versus New York City cocktails. Um, and that the West Coast, even including you know like Las Vegas and parts of Arizona that have some cocktail bars going on now, um, it tends to be a lot more herb driven, a lot more produce going into the cocktails. Whereas here, you know, we we don't really have access and it's it's definitely gotten better with like a lot of rooftop gardening and like biodynamic farming and all this stuff but it seems to be that like the new york or east coast whatever you want to call it style of cocktails when you say it's more like dark and stirred and like more bittered and things like that yeah i mean well sure in a way i mean phil ward the, the how i got out here basically 
was through a program that Phil Ward had put together, who was the original head bartender, bar manager, and opener of Death and & Company. And he wanted to see different bartenders come through and see what different people from around you know, the world had to offer you know, and with, with their different styles and whatnot. Um, but he, he definitely taught me one really important, uh, one really I- I- valuable thing for my whole idea about making drinks is, is that you can find flavors on your back bar that you didn't really know existed. Right. By blending things, you know, and mm-hmm. and that's the art of mixing drinks. You know, it's it's instead of maybe instead of instead of using Coca Cola, I bet you there's a way that you could mix a drink that tasted like Coca Cola. Carpano Antica and Fernet Branca. <laughs> I like where your head's at. <laughs> um, that's actually uh, that's a really good point, and I I would like to talk actually about that program for a second if you don't mind um so i didn't realize that phil ward was the one that put that together i know he was like the original uh head bartender of a death and company I remember he and a few others uh that kind of like left pegu club when started up uh as the the initial staff there as far as like I, I'm, I'm just fascinated by this program because you're getting a bunch of bartenders together that not that don't necessarily maybe get to travel a lot and uh, hang out with other bartenders from around the world. You're getting them together and you're you're, you're like you're riffing off each other. You're uh, exchanging like kind of in- your secrets, uh, techniques, uh, recipes, ingredients that are regional, uh, not just uh, not just uh, you know fruits and vegetables and herbs and things like that, but also like uh, you know like if you go to Chicago and you go to the Violet Hour and there, they have you know the Chicago has Jepsum's Malort. You can't get that anywhere else in the world for a reason. For a reason because it's kind of disgusting, but they really love it there, you know. And it's one of those regional things that was passed on to. Now it's been passed on to other bartenders and and I guess our community that you know it's it's good to know about. It. You definitely want to know about it. And like information is, is really important with what we're doing. I definitely have to tip my cap to Phil for inviting me to come work his shifts behind a bar behind death and company right. for a week when I was still living in San Francisco. And I mean, in turn, he covered my shifts at the Olympic bar in San Francisco. Right. <clears throat> because that's, that's a pretty ballsy move. You know, there's a lot of trust for, for, for a head bartender to leave his own bar and let some, punk kid like myself <laughs> come out you know and probably screw everything up uh but no i mean it's true there's 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 you're probably saying you know there's in a way in this industry there are there's a lot of uh rivalry a little bit of competition a lo- mostly hopefully friendly competition right but at the same time there you know we are a certain breed of people that sort of know how to how to connect and, yeah. and come together when when it's important, you know. Yeah, it, and when you it know, comes to growing and you know yeah. learning new things and stuff. Absolutely. Um, speaking of competitions, you've been in in quite a few competitions. You've won quite a few competitions. Um, it, what a lot of when when I talk to some of my guests at my bar about you know cocktail competitions and uh, when when these spirits companies put these on and 
they they always seem to be kind of like blown away by that. They just they don't really uh, they don't know that side of what we do. And uh, there's a lot of incentive involved for bartenders to actually be creative. So, I mean. I don't know if you wanted to uh, talk about any of the uh, like trips you've been on because of these competitions and how you got involved with them in the first place. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, okay. So when I was still barbacking at the Starlight Room uh, in San Francisco, which is a, a beautiful hotel bar, a little bit cheesy, I won't lie, <laughs> but most hotel bars these days are, That's to true. be honest. Um, but at the top of the Sir Francis Drake Hotel... And downtown Union Square in San Francisco, um, I was really lucky. I was able to work with some of some the best bartenders I know, to be honest. One of which, you know, Marco Dionysus, who still to this day I, I look up to him so much. He he taught me never to be ashamed of your profession. And at that time, you know, I was a I was a very very new bartender, very interested in in you know bartending, but still a barback, you know, but. I have to really tip my cap to him for, uh, you know, sort of supporting the idea that being a bartender is not a crime, you know, and, and that it's not just some segue to make money while you're, you know, learning to be a, or, you know, going to school to be a lawyer or a doctor or something, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, geez, I'm losing my train of thought now. <laughs> what was, what was the, we were, we were, we're going to start talking about, uh, competition. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Marco and, and Jacques Zayden, who were both on the, uh, the board for the USBG, which is the United States Bartenders uh, Guild, and they convinced me to join. And at the time, it was a hundred dollars a year to join. And I thought, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I want to spend a hundred dollars on that. But uh, they convinced me to do it, and I did it. And I entered my very first competition, which was for uh, for Hennessy Cognac. And I thought, well, anyway, it'd be a good experience. Out of the blue, I won, and then. Later that day, the, re- the regional competition went on. So it was a, there was a local competition and then a regional competition, and I won the the the, the uh, or the national competition, which basically sent me to the world world cocktail competition in Helsinki, Finland. Awesome. And I mean that just terrified me. Basically, <laughs> I, I was way over my head. You know, I'd, I made a drink with it was basically a sidecar with Benedictine and Mandarin Napoleon and orange bitters. Cool. But uh, but yeah, I mean. Definitely competitions. I think, you know, one thing, you know, Brian Miller says, you know, is that it's, it's only good for one person. It's only good for the person that wins, really. Yeah. And for the most part, bartenders aren't really good at losing, you know. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to be a loser. You it's, know? it's funny you bring up Brian Miller and competition. He was my guest last week, and he was talking about exactly what you were talking about, about not being ashamed of your position. And about we also hit on the, the subject of bartenders being bartenders as a profession and not just like something you do while you're going to school um or or being just being a bartender i mean marco who i was talking about earlier he's he still bartends at like three different places in san francisco <laughs> he's probably had more bar jobs than anybody in america i mean literally I, I would say he's probably worked behind 40 different bars at least but uh you know he's still just bartending and he's not and I know, you know, one one day your bones are going to get old, you're old and your your hands aren't going to be as coordinated as they used to be, and you're probably going to need to look somewhere else. But I mean, a lot of really young, talented bartenders right now are turning to uh, to 
other jobs like consulting jobs, which is nothing wrong with that. Good money and, yeah. you know, using your profession in a good way and, you know, becoming like liquor reps and stuff. And I just, I think, man, why do you got to go and do that? Like when we, we really need you as a, as a community, as a great bartender behind a bar, you know, serving people. That's, that's really interesting. You know, uh, there was an article in the New York times about, I want to say like six or seven months ago about, um, <clears throat> bartenders turning brand ambassadors and it just makes sense for them to do that. But one of the points that was made in that article is that you're taking these, uh, these men and women that are, these amazing bartenders, like well-pressed, uh, amazing mixologists, if you want to use that term, which is almost a no-no these days. It's just loosely, too. it's used too loosely. Um, but taking these really great bartenders from behind the bar and putting them out there, and then when you go to the bar, you know, you've got maybe not as good of a person back there making drinks for you. But the thing is about that, that I mean people that are, are doing this kind of bartending and like the work that hard at it deserve to eventually get a, like, a cush job that they can like hang out and talk enthusiastically about the, all the stuff that they know. I'll about. tell you one thing. When I first moved to New York city, I was working at death and company and I had one shift and I was sort of looking around at other bars to work at and Clover club was definitely one of them. And, uh, I think, you know, quite honestly, Julie Reiner was, was a little skeptical. She, she kind of knew I had moved here to work to, for Death & Company and, you know, maybe didn't want to hire me right off the bat because she thought maybe I was going to, as soon as I got my shifts at Death & Company, I'd just be out the door, which uh, actually kind of happened. <laughs> but I did need to find another job to make money. Every, you know, everybody needs to make money. Right. And I did, take a, I did take a consulting job with Bold Geneva. It was a very, or not consulting, uh, sorry, uh, a brand rep job with Bulls Geneva and you think that you go off and and get away from the bar and start talking to people and start sort of selling liquor you know to other people and getting people excited about a certain product would maybe make you feel like your life is a little bit more in order and that you wouldn't be drinking as much and that you know it's a little bit more of a daytime job and not true. I'll tell you what it was, <laughs> it was rough I didn't want to drink I didn't want to drink anymore yeah. I was getting to the point where I'm like this isn't even fun and it's nothing against the Bulls Geneva. I think it's a great product, and everybody I worked for was nothing but good to me. And uh, but after two months of of schlepping around town trying to sell a gin, I'm using uh, quotation. You, know, you can't see here. it, but there's quotations. Uh, here. <laughs> it was much more difficult than I thought it would be, and I had I had I had to quit. But so there are people that are really good at doing that job, but there are also people that are really good at being behind a bar. Right. Hey, you, uh, you know what? We're going to take a quick break right now. You're listening to The Speakeasy on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Damon Bolte. My guest right now is Thomas Wall. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back and we're going to talk more about anything that involves alcohol and Thomas Wall.
We're back. Um, my guest today is Thomas Waugh, head bartender of Death & Company in New York City. We are talking about his experiences coming into New York City from San Francisco and uh, talking about being a brand rep for a little while and being a bartender and we just took a shot of Fernet Branca. <laughs> and can you smell it? Can you smell it? Uh, you probably can. This microphone's going to smell like awesomeness for the next couple weeks. Um, you know, speaking of Fernet Branca, it's a huge thing in San Francisco and it's actually... I believe still, but not for long, the largest market for sales of Fernet Branca. The first, of course, being Argentina, where they drink it with Coca-Cola, Fernet con Coca. And then San Francisco, second being uh, shot, you know, like mostly shot-based and then uh, then chased with ginger ale, if I'm correct. Yep. And, uh, or not. Or not. Or not, or not even. And, and, yeah, I mean, I prefer chasing it with a beer. That, that's what I'm talking <laughs> about. Yeah. Um, you actually have a couple of, uh, you've, you've got some Fernet involved cocktails. You've got, uh, I remember the first time that I went to visit you, we were just talking about Clover Club and Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn, um, and working for Julie Reiner. I remember the first time that I met you was actually at that bar and you, I asked you for something, uh, a cocktail involving, uh, Fernet Branca. And uh, you were like, oh, that's funny. I just moved here from San Francisco. Uh, I've got this one called the Frisco Club. And uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that guy? Yeah. Um, basically, the Frisco Club. All right. Well, first I'll say I have to tip, tip my hat to Pegu Club. Not only the bar, but the cocktail. The cocktail. It's, my, it's probably one of my favorite gin, sours. Um, so basically, which, you know, okay, so the Pegu Club, you have orange and Angostura bitters, fresh lime juice. Triple sec, Cointreau, Curacao, whatever you will. I prefer Cointreau. I know that that's not exactly perfectly correct, but that's just what I like. And then, and then a London dry style gin. Well, basically, the Frisco Club was a variation on that um, with dry gin, grapefruit juice, Salerno blood orange liqueur as the you know the orange element, right. Right. Uh, and then fresh lime, also fresh lime juice, and Fernet Branca substituting as the bitter instead of you know the orange and ango. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that drink was, I think it was one of the first drinks I put on Death & Company's menu when Phil was still the head bartender and sort of ruling the place. Um, but, yeah, it also, I, I'm pretty sure there's a, plenty of, of San Franciscans that are uh, bummed out that I named a drink called a Frisco. <laughs> nobody, nobody from San Francisco calls San Francisco Frisco. <laughs> but That's funny. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's kind of... Uh, I'm also referencing another article. Uh, there was one in Tasting Table that I was a part of probably about eight months ago that involved Fernet. It was about Fernet Branca and, uh, and cocktails that used Fernet Branca. And it was talking about how um, how Fernet Branca taking in shots is kind of like the bartender's handshake. You know, like anytime you go to uh, any place like the Randolph. <laughs> or like you know, any bar. What, what where, do you mean by that, Damon? A place like the Randolph. Well, I mean <laughs> places where bartenders hang out, and sure. I'll accept like after hours. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there there tends to be a lot of uh, Vernet Bronca shots, and uh, <laughs> uh, I just that just reminded me of something else. I'll get to in a second. But um, uh, it's it's kind of crazy. It's like. It's a, such a it's such an acquired taste for anyone that's ever had that. They know that. 
Um, I think the first time you take a shot of Fernet Branca, you know whether you're going to love it or not. You yeah. might not enjoy it the very first time, but there's something invigorating about it. There's something that almost it almost kind of punishes you in a way that yeah. you like. Yeah, exactly. So if you like pain a little bit, you know, <laughs> you're probably going to like Fernet. Yeah. And I'll tell you, when when I was living in San Francisco and uh, you know coming up as a bartender, I had a lot of people, uh, older people above me that you know got, that got me way into Fernet and stuff. And uh, they actually the, at the Starlight Room where I started. They had to take Fernet off of, out of the program because it was just getting drunk too much by the bartenders. By the bartenders, and you, just, yeah. you couldn't. It couldn't be stopped. But it couldn't. That that didn't stop us from buying, coming in with a three seventy five, of Fernet and hiding it. You know, at the bottom of the ice well. Yeah. So I feel like it's the uh, like the <clears throat> cocktail bartender equivalent of like the dive bar tender, uh, shot being Jameson. I I remember working at a couple oh. of bars. Uh, back before I got into the cocktail bars, working there and just going through so much Jameson, like disgusting amounts of Jameson, and now it's switched to uh, Fernet Branca. It's like we can't it, when you when you go from ordering like one bottle a month to you know five cases a week. <laughs> it's right. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I just hired a new bartender from San Francisco, Lane Ford at Death and Company. Right. I'm finding myself ordering a lot more Fernet than I was, <laughs> you know before i drank so much fernet in san francisco and i had a friend of mine who came to me one day i said all right we're gonna do you know we're gonna do a shot of fernet one night and he goes he goes man i cannot do a shot of fernet and i'm like what are you talking about what what is wrong with you and he's like no i the last time i drank so much fernet i I had the worst hangover i've ever had i felt like i was gonna die and i'm like give me a break you're being a total you know what and i go (laughs) And then it wasn't, but like about a week later, I had a night where I drank <laughs> so many shots of Fernet, and I woke up and I knew exactly what he was talking about. It was probably the worst hangover I've ever had. Too much of a good thing yeah. equals a really, really bad thing. I've, I've found myself in those situations before. It, I didn't drink Fernet for probably at least six months, I'd say. I didn't, drink, I didn't even want to go near it. And I know that sounds kind of lame. You always hear people from their college you know, experiences saying, oh, I can't drink tequila, you know, I'll, right. I'll barf all over you. But that's kind of the way I felt a little bit. Yeah. And, it, and then I slowly got back into it by after, you know, a huge meal, a steak dinner or something, something very heavy, right. too much food, food coma. The only thing, it's no other intended Amaro, use. Yeah. no other Amaro can like rival yeah. the digestive qualities that Fernet has. Uh, you know, it's funny because they that. claim that if you... Yeah, like some of their earliest claims when when it was invented in 1845 um, were that it was a cure for like menstrual cramps and hangovers and all this stuff. And yeah, it does all that too. <laughs> you you've had <laughs> luck with your menstrual cramps. Yeah, being cured my, by my menstrual cramps when they start flaming up. You know. <laughs> um, but but uh, it's funny too because like I'd heard and this must have I it I know by now is the fact that like they say that if you just drink Fernet Branca all night that you'll wake up like feeling like a million bucks no hangover but I've tried doing that and you don't just drink Fernet Branca all night it's always something that you're drinking along with something else I feel like you know sure I mean I would like to see if we could actually do that one of these nights. <laughs> well, how many nights do you actually stick to one single thing all night long it's true how many cocktails can you actually drink at a night right I don't know I mean I know how many cocktails some people can drink. I've yeah. served them that many cocktails, yeah. but for me personally, I can drink. I can drink maybe two or three max. Actually, I'm like three or four max mm-hmm. before I just want a beer and something neat. 
you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then some crack. The, <laughs> you mean, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good, too. Just as um, a nightcap. <laughs> just as a nightcap. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, uh, actually, you were wanting to... <laughs> you were wanting to make a drink on the show today. Yeah, I do. I'm, and it was funny, because earlier when we were talking about this and playing out the show, um, we were talking about glassware that we needed and uh, the possibility of like bringing ice into the studio. And Thomas told me that we... Did not require any ice for this cocktail, which really piqued my interest. So, uh, why don't you take away, take it away? Okay, so for essentially, we're gonna do one of the, my favorite and oldest, historically one of the oldest cocktails. I, it's actually not a technically a cocktail, but let's By just call definition. it. Let's just call it a mixed yeah. drink. Yeah, but it originated in uh, you know in the old Dutch bars and the old Geneva bars, where uh, where men, mostly men, would sit. And have a beer, usually something stout, malty, big beer, and uh, you know a little cold shot of of Geneva, which is uh, essentially like people put it in the gin. Uh, they put it in the gin category or a certain category of gin, but it's really not. It's it's more of it's a more uh, like a whiskey. It's more like an unaged whiskey that's very lightly flavored with botanicals. Unfortunately, I don't have any Geneva with me today. But the best neck, the next best thing I have. Is a very very light Irish whiskey, the Napogue 1994. But basically, what we're going to do is a Boilermaker. <laughs> That's right, ladies and gentlemen, a Boilermaker. Nice. No, it's uh, so I'm I'm just going to take my flask here, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for letting us hear that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the opening of the flask. Poor Damon. Oh, thanks. Poor Damon, a little shot. Some li- nice light Irish malty Irish whiskey. I'm going to take our stout that we have here. I'm, <laughs> you can drop it in, but I think I'm just going to pour, pour, it pour in. mine in yeah. as well. Yeah, I, I, always, uh, I thought down. it was down the hatch, man. Cheers, my friend. Thanks for having me. Oh, my goodness. That is good. Yeah, the thing about the, uh, the dropping the shot glass into the beer, it's kind of unsanitary. You've got your hands on it. The bartender has their hands on it, but I just want to say that most times bartender's hands are pretty clean because you're constantly washing your shakers and mixing glasses but uh and never scratching your butt and never never scratching your you butt. don't want to do that you don't want to do that behind the bar Mm-mm. i mean you do but you shouldn't yeah. um but also it's uh as it's sitting on the bar you know you could pick up some debris or whatever anyway i just, I just don't drop it in because you probably end up breaking all your glassware that's true too <laughs> here, here i go thinking like a bar manager again yeah exactly costing of glassware <laughs> skyrocketing i actually once had a bar back who, when he got tired of, of washing glassware, he would just throw glasses in the trash. I worked. I finally some, caught him once. I worked. I'm like, what? <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Why are all our glassware? Why is it disappearing? Yep. I admittedly was working at a bar one time where that. every time we would take a shot, I would throw it against the wall because <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> I thought it was old saloony, you know, kind of that had that vibe going. But uh, <laughs> and then when I started managing that bar. I quickly stopped doing that. Um, Thomas, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I appreciate you making a Boilermaker for us. And uh, um, let's uh, let's have you back sometime, man. I'd love to. Thank All you. Right, it was cool. a lot of fun. Thomas Waugh from Death & Company has been my guest tonight. Uh, you're listening to The Speakeasy on the Heritage Radio Network every Wednesday at 3 o'clock. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. Thanks for listening. Bye.
Cheers. Good night.